Welcome to On Your Terms with Aaron King, a show about living a life you truly love. Here's Aaron. Hey everyone, Aaron King here, and welcome to today's episode of On Your Terms. My guest today is a very interesting character. He is someone that I met five or six years ago at the National Speakers Association, and I didn't quite realize how many incredible accolades that this gentleman has until I researched him for this episode. Guys, today's guest is one of the world's most inspirational speakers on customer experience, customer service, and all things marketing. He is a New York Times bestselling author of Count Them, six books. He's a seventh generation entrepreneur, the founder of five, five multi-million dollar companies. And most importantly, he is a lover of all things plaid and a certified tequila sommelier. Jay Bear, welcome to the show, my friend. Aaron King, what is up? You are a big deal. I am a big deal according to that introduction, which was probably written by my mother. Uh, apparently, I need to be much better at self-promotion if you didn't know any of those things until you researched me for the show. So I guess humbleness will get you nowhere. That is the theme of this episode. I love it. Well, I've obviously read your books. You, know, you have Hug Your Haters and Talk Triggers. Your Barefax uh, newsletter is one of my all-time favorites. You Thank have you. so many great podcasts. I love the Standing Ovation show, the story Thanks. behind the story. It's like VH1 behind the music for public speakers. <laughs> um, your Convince and Convert agency, which you recently sold. We have to hear that whole story. Story. I mean, there's just there's so much to dive into, um, but I think we should take it from the most important part of it, which is let's talk tequila and lake life and today's version of Jay Bear. Where are you right now? What are you excited about? What are you working on? Tell us what Jay is doing today. Thanks. Yeah, I'm at home in Bloomington, Indiana. Classic college shot. I actually moved here about 12 years ago because I started to travel every week for speaking. I, like I should be in the middle. So my wife and I just went on the web and we did a bunch of searches on towns in the Midwest uh, and and it kept saying all these different databases were saying Bloomington, Indiana. And I'm like, well, I'm a digital marketing guy. Who am I to argue with a relational database? So we just flew out here, never met anybody and said, yeah, we like it, packed up our family and moved here uh, 12 years ago based on what the internet told us. Um, and things have, have, have worked out great. Um, I spend most of my time now uh, speaking and writing and doing content kind of influencer programs for big companies. And as you mentioned, I spend a decent amount of my time writing my newsletter and doing tequila education and tequila reviews on TikTok and Instagram. That's uh, kind of the passion. I grew up in Arizona. I'm from Arizona, lived there for 40 years and went to school in Tucson. You know, before we were 21, we would go to Nogales on the Mexican side of the border every weekend to hang out. So I, I kind of come by agave spirits, uh, proximity and, uh, and fandom uh, by, by my previous geography. I'll tell you this, it's a lot easier to be a tequila fan in Arizona than it is in Indiana. Uh, you got to be closer <laughs> to the border. You're, you're lucky in California. Okay, let's talk about this. So, so, so tequila is in your veins, technically, from geographic not not as we point. record the show, but yes, on the <laughs> from the big picture perspective, yes. And then let's talk about as far as as like from a DNA standpoint. So, you're a seventh generation entrepreneur. Your yeah. son now is an eighth generation entrepreneur. When I read that, I got so jealous because I am first generation entrepreneur. My family has worshipped at the altar of corporate since I think back in the potato farms with the Irish <laughs> and the Irish, you know, whatever. And um, I just, I think that is so interesting. So, so when you were growing up, you watched your dad as an entrepreneur and you just, have you always just known that that was going to be 
have you ever thought of anything else or was that just the way it was in the um, bear house? Both, I guess is how I would answer that. So I never really thought it was unusual until I was much older and realized, oh yes, that is quite unusual. My family has been self-employed since the early 1800s and a series of, of uh, mostly retail uh, until uh, fairly recently. My dad was a serial entrepreneur, started lots of different businesses. I grew up in Lake Havasu City, Arizona. You probably know where that is, mm -hmm. uh, right on the California border. It's the hottest city in America, which is saying something. My dad well, it's started- It's also pretty low-key. It's very low-key. No raging parties, no, no lake life parties at all. <laughs> yeah, hardly any. Uh, my dad started the first ice company ever uh, in, in the hottest city in America. Good move. So he was a serial entrepreneur. And so I just sort of- um, observe that. But but no, there was never any like, okay, let's sit down around the table and explain why you should be an entrepreneur as opposed to working for an organization or company. My mom was a high school teacher, right? So kind of the opposite of an entrepreneur. Um, and I didn't do it till relatively late. I was 30 uh, before I started my first uh, company. And I wanted to do it much, much younger. I'd wanted to do it the whole time because I sort of felt like I have the skills and obviously it's in the DNA of the family, et cetera. But I was really fortunate, Aaron, that that coming out of college, I got um, some pretty good jobs pretty quickly. So I was making pretty good money and I had a wife and a young daughter. And I was like, do I really want to risk all that to start this company? And so I didn't, and I didn't, and I didn't, and I didn't. And I consistently put that dream off. Hmm until something really major happened in my life. And it sort of caused me to rethink all of that. Well, what happened? So when I was um, in that part of my life, my very best friend had been my best friend since second grade, since we were seven years old. We were such good friends, Aaron, that my best friend married my wife's sister. Oh, wow. So my best friend became my brother-in-law, which I oh, totally wow. recommend to anybody uh, tuning in. If you can reverse engineer that, so it makes Thanksgiving amazing. The whole, you know, it's it's really pretty great. So That's we spent cool. all of our time together in those days, the four of us. And then I got a phone call uh, from uh, my best friend and brother-in-law, Al, who said, turns out I have brain cancer. And I went in the next day and quit my job. And I haven't worked for anybody since that wow. day. I, I just sort of realized, like, what am I actually scared of? Like, I'll start a company and it doesn't work out. Like, so what? I'll go get another job making a bunch of money. Uh, I was I was scared of something I, I hadn't really defined yet. Mm -hmm. And his diagnosis really made me define what I was scared of and kind of write it down. And that gave me the courage to say, like, you know what? The downside of this is not anything like having brain cancer. And so mm -hmm. um, that was the, the push that I needed. So that's interesting. So so you had sort of this very dramatic moment that happened where you saw mortality and you thought to yourself, like, kind of what's the worst that can happen? At least it's not brain, you know, so yeah. it's, it's interesting. So when you made that leap, I mean, a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs and a lot of mm -hmm. us have had that sort of, it takes that really dramatic moment to actually have the balls to, to do the damn thing. Yeah. Um, for you, where did you get started? Like, so once you were all in, you were yeah. like, okay, I'm doing this. I'm all in. I'm going. Um, wh what did you start out to? Like, what was your first move? So I I knew I was going to start a professional services firm. That was kind of okay. what I was best at and, and still am in a lot of ways. But I was like, okay, I was in Phoenix at the time. I was one one person in a relatively large city with a lot of other professionals. And, you know, I was, I was 
30. So, or whatever. So I wasn't a kid, but you know, I, I certainly didn't have a tremendous amount of experience. And so the only way this is really going to work is if people know that I'm out there. Uh, and, and so I spent two weeks straight and I called 400 people. Wow. Like I literally one by one hand dialed every single person in the business community that I knew uh, in Metro Phoenix and said, Hey, uh, I'm starting my own thing to do a uh, website strategy. Um, this is kind of when web people were just sort of still people starting to build their very first or second websites and they didn't yeah. know who to hire or what to pay. And they didn't trust web design companies because they're like a bunch of kids and they're going to steal my money and it's not going to work. And so I had had a lot of experience in that industry um, before I started my own thing. I said, look, I'll make sure that it goes well. It'll be on time. You'll get what your money's worth. I'll make sure it's good. And so I, I was essentially a broker, almost a project manager for web design um, projects. And and uh, I I called a bunch of people and I got three projects in the first two weeks and was profitable in the first month and have, and have literally been profitable every month since then. It's been 23 years. So have you ever thought about because obviously a lot of people listening to this are like, oh, I just want to raise some capital. I want to have the investors. I want to have the the cushion. I mean, you bootstrapped it, which is the best way to do it. But what if people are afraid to do that? I mean, what's your where where do you stand on on taking on investors versus growing it yourself? Obviously, you're in the latter camp from your experience, but. Sure. Um, yeah, but I also do a lot of venture capital. Like I'm an angel in 35 companies or something, including lots wow. of successful exits. So uh, I'm very, very familiar with the opposite approach as well. Some with my money and others, you know, I'm riding along on bigger deals that that have, you know, um, $100 million D rounds, et cetera. So I've seen all sides of it and been on lots of boards. There's nothing wrong with taking capital as long as you understand why you're taking capital. Mm -hmm. And and if it's because there's no other way or because that capital brings you something other than just money, you should absolutely do it. But I, but I think at some level, especially in the last two to three years where capital has been very, very free and easy and, and relatively simple to attract, um, there's been a lot of entrepreneurs who have said, well, it's just so simple to raise money. Let's just do that. When you probably could have done it yourself or done it through debt financing or some other set of circumstances that ultimately may have given you some more strategic options down the road. So mm -hmm. I'm certainly by no means anti-venture capital. Um, I, 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 I've bought at least one boat based on my success as a venture capitalist, Yay. but uh, I don't think it should be the reflexive answer either. And as a professional services firm, which has always been my specialty, there's really no capital requirements, right? It's do you have a laptop um, yeah. and, and essentially all you're selling is trust. <laughs> And so there's no capital costs associated with building trust, really. Mm -hmm. Okay. So speaking of investments, um, you have a great story that I just remembered uh, as you were talking about a particular investment that maybe if you could have a time machine and go back, you may have uh, made different choices when it came to a URL that you were in Oh, yes. At. Well, I have one of the things that's been fortunate for me is that I have been in the internet business, quote unquote, since there was an internet business. I literally started in 1993. And it's not as if I had some like amazing vision of the future of the world. Like, you know what you should do? Get involved in this internet thing because it's going to change everything. I, that, I am not that smart. Uh, I was the <laughs> spokesperson for the Arizona Department of Juvenile Corrections. Uh, I was the youngest spokesperson, I think, still in the history of Arizona. And so my job was to talk to the press and give tours of the juvenile prisons. So you can imagine how fun it is to give prison tours all day. Um, it's not that awesome. <laughs> and so I realized pretty quickly that, A, I didn't love giving prison tours. B, I didn't really like working for the government because it is almost 
well, it is my, it is the opposite of entrepreneurial. And I'm like, this is not for me. Uh, so I was looking to get out pretty bad. And I had some uh, drinks with some friends of mine from, from college who had started, as it turns out, the very first internet company in Arizona. And they said, hey, this thing is getting kind of big and we don't know anything about marketing or communications. And I said, well, that's okay. Because when you say the word internet, I don't actually know what that word means. And that was no joke. This is the days when it was like, you know, AOL, CompuServe, Prodigy, the, the kind of open, unregulated internet was a scary thing that was not really even known by very many yeah. people. But I was like, look, I'll do anything to not do another tour of this prison. Yeah. So I was like, walked in, quit and started at this internet company. And we were so early that when we when we began this company, domain names were free. You could get any domain name you want and not even pay anybody for it, right? I mean, I don't even know how they kept track of it, like a post-it note or something. So <laughs> uh, we registered a bunch of domain names. I was 23. I was the oldest of the group. Uh, my partners were 22. And as a result of that, uh, we registered a lot of domain names in a particular category. So we had sure. uh, all the <laughs> all the beer brands. And so one of the ones we registered was Budweiser.com. And six months later, Anheuser-Busch Brewing uh, <laughs> called, now owned by uh, uh, InBev, but at the time AB, and they called and said, hey, we want to start the very first website for Anheuser-Busch's Budweiser brand. It says here that you own the domain name. We said, yes. Of course, now they can force you to give it to them by trademark law, but back then, none of that existed. And we said, well, we're not going to give it to you. I said, well, we really want it. So we negotiated back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it turned out we sold Budweiser.com to Anheuser-Busch in 1993 for 50 cases of beer. 50 <laughs> cases of beer was our actual price. Uh, and we genuinely thought that we pulled one over on them. I, I will say that. this, in our, in our defense, uh, and this was literally <laughs> written in the contract, I'm not kidding you. It was specified in the paperwork, bottles, not cans, because you got to you got to keep it classy. We're like, look, we're not going cans, man. This is, and I think actually long necks. I think we specified long necks. So yeah, those are, those are the days. Humble beginnings. That is such an incredible story. You know, my dad has a story about someone who approached him. He was working in the food business, and uh, one of his clients was uh, the people who ended up making Dasani water. And they tried to pitch him on bottled water. You know, it was Nestle. And he was like, no one is going to pay for water. It's free. And it was like one of these initial moments where he just still kicks himself. That and then someone else was talking a lot about, it was like an early days email server or something, a similar story where he's just like, yeah. I could literally have been playing golf the last 40 years if I had just had the crystal ball, you know? Even my husband and I, you know, we bought Bitcoin back in 2013 and we were like very early to the crypto game. And I remember, you know, it was, I don't know, 2017, 2018, and it was whenever it went up like to like 17 or 17,000, something like that. And we thought we sold, you know, at the high. And we were like, good job us, we're so smart, similar boat situation, right? Yeah. And then now you're just like, gosh, if only we had a crystal ball, if only we could know what we know now. And isn't that, isn't that interesting? Because as entrepreneurs, we're all just kind of flying by the seat of our pants, you know, doing the best we can, but we don't really know how what we're gonna do is gonna shake out, you know? Oh, for sure. And that's why my favorite saying in business, in fact, it's right here off uh, off camera. I have a sign here that my mom bought for me, I don't know, probably 15 years ago. I bought it with me from Arizona when I moved here. It says right here, it says, except that some days you're the pigeon and some days you're the statue. And it's my favorite, right? Because I was always taught to try and keep it even keel, right? That yeah. That you're never doing as well as you think you are. 
and you're never doing as bad as you think you are. And, and that sign is right in my field of vision all the time. And so I really try to, to live my life that way and, and try to, you know, impart it into my team as well as like, look, like, let's not get too excited and let's not get too bummed. It really, especially in the entrepreneurial side of things, you're always going to have a roller coaster and, and it's how you deal with those ups and downs, I think is actually more important than the ups and downs themselves. I think so too. I think that's really well said. And and just kind of not getting too high and not getting too low, which is so hard because as entrepreneurs, I don't know about you, but I have the hardest time separating who I am from what I do. And who you are is so deeply emotional and so deeply high highs and low lows, you know? And so yeah. so what is what is one of your secrets for remembering that some days you're the statue and measure the pigeon? Is it just tequila? Is that the answer for everything? Or, well, yeah, it doesn't do hurt. We, how do we it doesn't but, hurt. But seriously, like do you have like a mantra besides that or that helps you when you're when you start to feel like I'm gonna I'm gonna lose my shit right now? Like how how do you stay even keep? Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of things. One, it's funny what you said about um, separating who you are from what you do. When I was an intern, my very first job, this is literally, I was the summer after my freshman year of college, I was an intern for a public affairs firm in Phoenix. And the creative director there, an amazing guy, his name is Paul John. And I'd been there probably three weeks, right? So I'm literally had just turned 18. And we went to lunch one day and he said, hey, um, you know, you're, you're a pretty smart kid. I think you've got a future in this business, but I want you to remember something. He was probably, I don't know, 55 at the time. He said, Hey, always remember who you are and what you do are not the same. Mm. And he told me that when I was 18 and man, talk about lunches that changed your attitude. Uh, I was really, really fortunate in that regard. I've actually been really fortunate in that regard time after time after time. Like, you know, before I became an entrepreneur, I was so lucky that I had a ton of really great mentors and bosses and role models in business, not only in my family, but but as a young professional, just people I worked for and with. Um, you know, you think about a lot of times people become really good baseball managers or basketball coaches or whatever. And if you kind of peel back that onion, it turns out they played for a bunch of great managers or a bunch of great mm -hmm. coaches, right? So they, mm -hmm. they took bits and pieces from all the people that they had um, exposure to. And that's certainly what I have tried to do as well. And, um, you know, you can't, you can't architect that. Some of that's just luck. And I realized just how fortunate I was. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you had a lot of very impactful experiences early on that set a great foundation for you to be such a rock star. Um, yeah, it, it helps. And, and also I think understanding, you're talking about kind of keeping even keel, also realizing like, look, um, you know, having a lot of loss in my life, especially at a younger age, really helps. I mean, it's terrible and I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Um, but when you have a lot of loss, I think it helps you in business because you're like, look, right? There's not really a social media consulting emergency, right? There's not really a customer experience emergency. Like, yes, mm -hmm. you've got an unhappy team member who wants to quit, or you've got an unhappy client or whatever you think the drama of the day is in the big scheme of things. It's not really very important at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and having other things in your life um, somewhat consistently remind you of that, I think makes you a better entrepreneur because it's really mm -hmm. easy to get wrapped up in your own stuff. God, it's so true. I think what I like best about you is that you don't take yourself very seriously, but you take your work so seriously. And that's like a perfect combo. You know, like when you're on Thanks. stage and you're just, like you said, like I didn't even know all these things about you, which is probably my fault because you are just kind of just like humble, like nice, just like everyone wants to be around. You got a great vibe going on, like you're fun, Jay. And then, then I look at all these accolades and like how seriously you take your companies. And it's like, that's, that's like the perfect 
intersection that we should all <laughs> exist at. That I think I I would like to be better at that personally. I have a really hard time um, with turning that part of me off. You know, I mean, I think I'll never forget after um, you know I raised seven figures of capital for my online. Uh, subscription service, which was called PMS.com. We were the tampon fairies in Forbes, and we were trying to be the Dollar Shave Club for women's healthcare. I'll never forget, 18 months into this thing, after raising seven figures of capital, someone offered to buy the URL, PMS.com, three-letter URL, and it was worth more than this business that had been, blood, Crazy, sweat, right? and tears, pun intended, for 18 months, like my whole life. I just remember sitting on the beach, crying my eyes out, Basically, I, I barely broke even. Like, it was just a total waste of time and money and energy. And I, I had dreamed of being like the next Michael Dubin, like riding off of the sunset with my Unilever acquisition. And I'll never forget just sitting there and be like, I just feel like such a failure. Like, I'm just, I just feel like a failure. And I had such a hard time separating like that a business can fail, but it doesn't mean that you are a failure. That it's that, that distinction is just so hard for, for us. I just, I really think it's interesting that you do such a good job at kind of separating it out, you know? I think partially because I know I could always start another business. <laughs> okay, let's talk about this. Right, so it might be a different started, one. It might be a different yes. one, but you know, I'll just do it again. So, okay, but so for you, so you founded five multi-million dollar companies. Your agency convinced and convert. You were just acquired or sold, right? You sold the agency? Yep. Congratulations. Freaking amazing. So, but what is it for you? Like you're a serial entrepreneur, you're seventh generation. Do you just love the creating? Do you love the possibility? Is it like just to see if you can? Do you see other people and think, well, if he or she can do it, why not me? Like what, what is your jam? Like why, what, what drives you? I mean, I think part of it is I'm unmanageable at this point, right? Like I can't, <laughs> I can't actually work for anybody else. Uh, well, you know, I, I definitely that. have like most entrepreneurs, uh, strong control freak tendencies. So I'm sort of like, well, I can't really fit into anybody else's organization. Mm -hmm. So I better create my own organization because that's the only way I can prosper. I mean, there's, that's literally part of it. Right. Um, and, and then I always have a million ideas. Like, so I fish every Tuesday night with my buddies at the lake. Right. And they're all entrepreneurs and they're all smart. And, and, and then, you know, you've got some boat beers and the whole thing. And, and I'll bet you we've come up with like 50 legit great ideas. Um, just on the boat. Uh, and, and so I always get excited about that and the, and the starting part of it, like, let's see, if we can do it and let's see if we can make it work to me is just um, the thrill of a lifetime. And, and it's hard to stay away from that. I'm not as good of an operator, which is why I typically tend to get businesses to a certain level of success or size. And then I tend to get out because I know that what I'm disproportionately good at is ideation to sort of the, the sort of second or third kind of rung on the ladder. Beyond that, I'm not an organized enough thinker or a disciplined enough thinker to be a great operator at scale. Um, and so I, I know that about myself, right? And so it's like, all right, get it here and then, and then let somebody else who's better at that um, make it happen. That's really interesting. I, I think it took me way too long to figure out that I don't have to be good at everything in order to run a business. Like it took me way too long to understand that. And I think if I had known to delegate my weaknesses and focus on yeah. my strengths much sooner, I'd probably made a lot more money a lot faster. I'll tell you a tip um, that, that we do at the company before yeah. I sold it. Um, so I had convinced convert for 13 years. And one of the things that we would do each year in our annual strategic planning session, um, all virtual company was all virtual from the beginning, which was crazy when wow. we started it. Clients wow. were like, what, what are you talking about? And we had huge clients, United Nations, Oracle, IBM, Hilton, um, CVS, like, you know, Kaiser Permanente, the, you know, some of the biggest companies in the world as consulting clients. 
Uh, and we started the company. It was so, they're like, what do you mean you don't have an office? What do you mean you won't come visit us? What do you mean we can't visit you? We're like, it's going to be fine. Don't worry. And then, of course, the world kind of kind of turned the corner and we were proven correct. Um, so we'd only have one face-to-face meeting a year for the team, wow. one a year. Uh, everything else is virtual. And each year, one of the things we do in that session, which would last a few days, is we would kind of go through all of my time. We would audit my time as the as the CEO and say, what am I spending my time with on? Mm-hmm. And then how can we move 15% of that out? And, and if you do that every year, if you audit your time and delegate 15% of it to somebody else in your organization or a third party, if you do that year after year after year, you get to the point where I was before I left, which was I spend time only on things that I am uniquely qualified to do. Mm-hmm. And as an entrepreneur, one of the keys to success is getting to that point as quickly as you can. Every minute that you spend doing something that somebody else could do 80% as well is a minute wasted. And, and so if you ever, like, I know you like to cook. And so if you make a, make it like a, a, a red wine reduction sauce, right? And, and so it starts off kind of wet and loose, and then you put it over the heat and then it evaporates and it gets thicker and thicker and thicker. That's the metaphor I use for how you should spend your time as an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. right? You you delegate and thicken the sauce, delegate and thicken the sauce until at the end, the sauce is perfect. And by perfect, I mean, you're the only person who can do the things that you do. Mm-hmm. Gosh, it's so much easier said than done. I feel like oftentimes I'll say like, am I spending as much time as possible doing something that only I can do? Because I've heard you give that advice before and it's genius. And then sometimes I'm like, or am I just telling myself I'm doing that because I just lazy and I don't feel like doing that thing. So I'm trying to delegate it off to right. somebody else. Sure. Like, which sure. narrative is the truth? Well, and, we, and yeah. the entrepreneur curse is, and I've heard this a million times and I and I would admit that that I am guilty um, of saying this. I, I finally cured myself of it, which is sure I could delegate this, but it'll take so long to teach somebody else yes. that I might as well do it myself. And that yes. is the great lie that you got to uh. stop telling yourself. Because yes, you're right. It will take longer the first two times. But after that, it'll be easier, right? And so you've just got to be like, look, one step back, two steps forward. That's what we want here. Um, and, And it's hard to convince yourself of that. But trust me, it is true. Well, it is true. And it's interesting because I feel like as creators and ideators, you know, we don't get psyched about process. We're not like, yes, I don't. Let's build a process, right? Like, but but investing that time up front saves you so much on the back end. It's such a game changer in terms of profitability. And so it's it's like you said, you reap the rewards later, but getting wild salespeople, creatives to really invest in a process, I think is, is I think the make or break between like a lifestyle business and actually scaling an empire. And that's what you've done, yeah. you know, with your company. So tell me more about, about the company. So you, mm-hmm. you sold the company after you had it mm-hmm. for like 15 years, uh, 13 years, 13 years. Um, how, what was that like for you emotionally? Cause I mean, I, you know, on our side with socialite, we were acquired this past January and I thought I was going to be so happy about it. And I felt like it was almost like this death. I felt like a, like a loss of, again, my identity and who I was. And so what was that like for you from an emotional standpoint? It's always hard, especially when you put so much of your own self into it. I'm really lucky though, that I'd done it before. Right. So yeah. I knew what it felt like. Um, if it was the first time, and, and when I did it the first time, it was a lot harder. Um, in this particular case, I felt great about um, Lane Terra Lever, the company from Phoenix who acquired 
commit to convert their old friends. I have tremendous amount of respect and trust for everybody in that organization. Uh, I knew the whole commit to convert team was staying on board. I knew my VP was taking over as president. So there was very little disruption to operations. And so I knew that most importantly, my people would be taken care of. Second, most importantly, our clients would be taken care of. And so yeah. that that made it uh, the fear part kind of go away, which was great. And um, it was a little different this time for me, Aaron, because I was just ready. And, and that was all yeah. a pandemic thing, right? Like if, if we wouldn't have had the pandemic, I would still own the agency. There's no question about it. Um, but once I was forced to get off the merry-go-round, um, and not travel 200 days a year and do all the things that, that, you know, you and I do, uh, it really changed my perspective on what success looks like. And, and somebody asked me the other day on a show, what's the, what's the number one lesson that COVID taught you? Uh, and my number one lesson was it's okay to do less. Mm. And it took a global pandemic to learn that lesson. Um, I, I have always believed and to some degree been taught um, that that more is more. And I realized that that's not the case. Like I didn't realize how stressed out I was until I was forced to stop um, and, and forced to stop running an agency from an airplane, essentially. And, uh, and I was like, oh, wow, this is actually I'm I am I am way happier now than I was before the pandemic. Um, and so COVID is terrible, but sometimes there's a silver line and I certainly consider myself to be part of that. Um, so it's, it's okay to, to not be the best and the most and the whatever, you just got to keep scoring a different way. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, um, uh, Rory Vaden is a great, uh, friend of mine. And I know, you know, Rory as, as well. And he and I've been in a mastermind together for years and, and it's like probably four years ago, I was kind of bitching about being stressed and stuff. And he said, Hey, Jay, here's an idea. What if um, instead of keeping score based on perceived success or um, revenue or the other things that we all use for, for, for metrics, what if you every Friday just scored yourself one to 10 on how happy you are mm. and you just kept that in a spreadsheet, one to 10, how happy you are, and you tried to maximize that number. And I did it mm. and it totally changed my life. Okay. Let's talk more about that. I love that so much. Um, I have to say that this advice sounds so cliche because everyone says like money doesn't make you happy you know judge success based on your own metrics like it all sounds coffee cup glittery pinterest but i can honestly say jay that the most money i ever made was this one year where i was the most unhappy i've been in my entire life it, there is literally the, the correlation and then you're sitting here like okay i just lost on two fronts or you're accomplishing the big thing like my, my big girl book last year was you know, a big top five publisher i got there and i'm like okay this isn't what i thought it was going to feel like and then you're like losing on both fronts because you didn't spend the time doing what you wanted to do you didn't hang out with the friends and family you treated your body like crap you achieved the thing and you're at the top of the mountain like well, this isn't how it was supposed to feel. And so that recalibration, whether it was forced from the pandemic or from a moment where you're just so let down by what you think success is gonna feel like, I think are some of the most critical redefinition moments that we all have to walk through. So so with you and the pandemic, like I wanna hear the the circle of life. So, so the pandemic hits, you're like, okay, it's gonna be probably temporary. You're kind of like going crazy, like probably doing a lot of home projects or whatever. And then you start mellowing out. And there was probably a moment where you were like, oh wait, this could be a new way of life. Like walk us through how you went from like, I more is the more to Jay right now, who is like, maybe there's another way that success can look on the other side of this. 
Yeah, I mean, at first I was really, really concerned, not so much about um, me, but just about the team and the business, right? Because yeah. I'm like, all right, if this is going to be a global pandemic, is it going to bring all business to a halt, right? Because in those first couple of months, like we really didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah, is, is this just going to be an economic freeze? Like I knew it was going to impact the speaking side of the business, of course, but but I was much more concerned about is nobody ever going to hire us to do anything because nobody wants to spend any money because nobody knows what's going to happen. And there was a little of that temporarily. Um, uh, but, but it, it actually the opposite happened. We, we, we created a lot of content for clients and just for the industry about how to, how to work virtually because we'd been doing it for 13 years and yeah. how to do a whole bunch of other things that became more important than the pandemic and actually created a bunch of business. So the company grew pretty quickly in the pandemic. And so that was, that took a little pressure off like, okay, the consulting side is going to be fine and the team is yeah. going to be fine. And then it became like, oh, well, I used to give whatever dozens of, of live presentations a year. And now none of that is going to happen. Um, and so then we said, okay, how do we do more virtual presentations? And I had done a lot over the years anyway. And we sort of spun that up and, and ended up doing, I think a hundred last year. So um, pretty quickly, I discovered that the revenue would be the same approximately, um, but just how I spent time would be way different, right? And it wouldn't be uh, on an airplane or traveling. It would be at home. And I was like, man, I could get used to this not owning pants thing. Uh, And I was like, wow, so you're telling me that I can make basically the same amount of money and never leave the house? Hmm. Yep. Interesting. Awesome. I didn't know that was possible. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that was, I didn't know that was a thing. Right. So, and, and then of course you kind of get your, your COVID bubble and, and you only have your, you know, very small number of people that you're allowed to see. And, uh, and, and we of course had that here and, you know, with, with six or eight, um, you know, really good friends and, and those relationships deepened uh, and became so much more intimate and important uh, during COVID yeah. than they would have been before. And it just kind of changes uh, at least for me, kind of what, what you value. Right. And, and I used to really want to be on the road and go do those things. And and I'm glad to be back on the road. Don't get me wrong, but, uh, I also now really value being home too, and being with my wife and, and being here in town with my friends and doing more kind of local volunteer stuff and just all of that. Right. Like, Hey, mm-hmm. you know, it, um, it's okay to, to, to stay close to home. Well, and to build that community, it's just, I mean, it's so hard to build community when you're not physically there. And I mean, of course we have our our virtual social media friends and we meet up here and there, but there's nothing like that physical connection. Like, you know, the 68 couples and you're sitting around and feeling the energy and having the laugh and walking away feeling so filled up and not drained, you know? Yeah. Or you know, I, there was one point where I realized my husband's like, you don't have any friends. I was like, I have friends. He's like, no, you don't have friends. He's like, everyone you hang out with is somehow related to the business he's like in some way and that for me was such a moment of like wow you know because you hear about these places like the blue zones right with the Mm -hmm. the centenarians and one of the big factors of living this like long vibrant life is community it's who they're spending time with and and so i think it's really interesting to hear that you kind of had this revelation on the other side of the pandemic and so you and allison basically are you're kind of new empty nesters right or when are you relatively yeah our daughter our daughter just moved to Paris um, three oh, months ago. Wow. She is her first job out of school. She graduated uh, last May, so like a year ago. Uh, and now she lives in Paris and is doing marketing for an influencer platform. And then our Damn. son is a senior, will be a senior at Indiana University. So he has an apartment right around the corner. So we get to see him um, uh, 
once or twice a week, like we text him like, Hey, want to come over for dinner? And it's always the same question. Well, what do we have it? Right. And so yeah. if he, <laughs> if he, if he's interested enough in what's being served, then he'll show up. And if he's like, yeah, I'm not that into it. He's like, no, I'm, I'm busy. Right. It's, it's kind of hilarious, but it's nice to see him. But yeah, so we, it's just us uh, here at home. And then you guys were kind of at the lake and then you were back at your yeah. house. Like, tell me about your, your geographical journey too. Yeah. So you've been sort of, yeah. <laughs> At one point, we had four houses within 10 miles, which is doing vacationing wrong at some level. But, <laughs> uh, so we, we we had a house here in town that we lived in when the kids were little, and it was a, a larger house. And we were like, this is too much house for the two of us. This is crazy. So we sold that house and moved to the lake. We'd had a lake house for a while. And I grew up on a lake and super into that whole culture. And we were out there for six months. But it's 20-something it's minutes to anything. And I mean... I mean, any commercial business, period. You you can't buy a pack of gum for 20 minutes in any direction. Uh, and I'm not, I don't have a problem with that, but Allison does. And so as yeah. it turns out. So, uh, and of course those were pre-pandemic days too. And so I was on the road a ton too. So in the winter, it's a frozen lake with nobody out there because most people are part-time residents. Uh, and she's by herself as a woman on a frozen lake in the middle of nowhere. She's like, hard pass. So we, <laughs> so uh, she was like, I can't do it. It's too remote. It's too lakey. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I get it. So we, we bought a house back in town uh, and moved in there. We were there for a couple of years. And then we just moved again, uh, just down the street, like a, a mile to a really cool house where I'm currently sitting, uh, right next to campus. So we're walking distance to the, to the university and restaurants downtown and all that. So it's much more of a kind of a commutable vibe, which mm -hmm. is, uh, it's really, it's cool. We like it. But what I love about that story is it's okay to change your mind. I mean, you're like, we're gonna try that. We're gonna try the lake. We're gonna try a campus. We're gonna try the house from forever. I, I love that, that there's just sort of this agility to how you're approaching, whether it's your business or your life. And I just feel like that's a page I definitely take out of your book, which is like, okay, we can try any, let's try it. What's the worst that can happen? It's not brain cancer. Like yep. everyone needs that moment, right? Just be open. And I think that for a lot of the, a lot of the comments that I get on my social media and a lot of the questions I get are all around sort of this fear of too much pivoting or mm -hmm. looking flaky or trying all the things and being, you know, everything to everyone, but nothing to no one. And so we, what, what what do you preach in terms of that? I mean, exact opposite. Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe to my detriment, but one, I get bored really easy. And two, I just feel like, look, whatever you want to do and whatever's interesting to you, your audience will come along for the ride. Yeah. And, and maybe not everybody, but there'll be new people who didn't know your work or didn't know your business or didn't know your thing, um, who you'll pick up with this new thing. Right. So you think about, um, we talk about writing books. So it's common in, in sort of the speaker world that people will write a number of books, but they're, and I don't want to be disparaging to my peers, but in many cases, it's basically the same book written five times, right? It's, it's essentially the same advice. It's very much in the same field. Um, and I don't want to do that, right? I wrote a book about social business, a book about word of mouth, a book about customer experience, a book about content marketing. Like, is it all in the same overall genre? Of course, I'm not going to write a book about, you know, chromatic spectrometry or whatever. Like that's not my thing, right? I'm not going to write a book about astrology, right? So I only have a, a <laughs> my lane can only be so wide. However, sure. within that genre, it's unusual to write a bunch of books that are that different, but I don't care, right? I, I want to, I want to find a pattern that I think is interesting. I want to find a, a set of advice that I think people don't know. And I'm going to find a way to teach that, right? That's why I, I have a, a whole series of TikTok 
uh, accounts and, and Instagram accounts to teach people about tequila because I think tequila is under-respected, under-regarded, under-appreciated. And as I mentioned, uh, my buddy Rory Vaden has another great piece of advice that I try to follow. He said, your audience is always the person that you used to be. There was a time when I didn't know anything mm, about tequila. That's good. That's good. Uh, there was a time I didn't you, know anything about tequila. And now I know a lot about tequila. And so one of the things I really try to do is not make content for other nerds. Because <laughs> what's the point of that, right? Like sure. all that is, is showing off. So I try to make content for people who probably don't know anything about good tequila. Mm -hmm. And and try to always keep in mind, like, there's a lot of there's a lot to be said for being really good at 101, 202 content. And I think there's a curse of expertise that impacts a lot of entrepreneurs, especially content creators. You're like, oh, that's too basic. Everybody knows that. Everybody no, they don't. Mm -hmm. They It's too basic to you. But remember, your audience is the person that you used to be. Mm -hmm. It's so funny. I feel like we all second guess ourselves as we as we advance through the echelons of our, of our respective professions. We think to ourselves, doesn't everyone know this? Just because we know it, doesn't mean everyone else. And I feel like as, as a speaker too, one time I, I called you because I was getting ready to do the, the main stage talk at, at Influence. And I was so nervous. I just was second guessing all my content and you just had the best advice. You were like, what do you know that they don't? Like just literally share what you know that they don't. And that piece of advice just grounded me so, so greatly. I was like, oh, okay. Because we all have something to offer that everyone's going to lean forward and say, well, go on, tell me more. Didn't know that. But just trusting that we do have that value to offer, you know, I think is so key. And I think for a lot of the, you know, people talk about imposter syndrome all the time. And it's like, yes, I mean, there's a healthy degree of not thinking that you know everything and are overly entitled. But the same token, like, do you have do you have an ability to like really hone in on the fact that you have something unique to offer the world? You have at least one thing. You have at least one perspective, one skill set, one mindset. You have a thing that not everyone has, at least not through your lens. So how do we hone in and trust that there's value that people want to hear it? You know? Yeah, and, and I think uniqueness is actually overrated. Like you don't need to have a category of one to be of value to an audience or to a customer base, right? You you don't have to have um, expertise that no one has ever cobbled together before. You can be disproportionately good in how you explain it or the examples you use or the techniques that you teach. Like, I'm not saying go out and steal other people's stuff. I'm just saying that the idea doesn't have to be unique. Sometimes the application of it is what's unique. Look, think about Apple, Microsoft, Google, um, they haven't invented anything, like almost nothing. Like almost every single popular product that Apple, Microsoft, and Google has was an iteration or a purchase of technology that somebody else came up with. So this idea that you've got to own it and it's got to be unique and distinct, it's not true. Look, here's my best compliment I can get when I give a speech, and I've done 1,100 of them. On a fairly regular basis, I will leave the stage and someone will come up to me and say, Jay, I love that talk. You know, I've thought about this before, but I never really thought about it in the way that you told me about it. In a lot of ways, what you said is common sense, but I always forget those lessons. And I'm like, thank God. When someone mm -hmm. tells me that what I told them was common sense, what that means is they got it. I would much rather them say it's common sense than I didn't really understand what you were saying. Mm-hmm. 
It's so well said. It's so true. And you are the king of killer case studies too, which also brings it to light. It makes everyone nod their head and say, oh, <laughs> now I see you have the best examples ever. Thanks. So Jay Bear, we, we know your personality now, a TikTok tequila enthusiast. We know you are a lover of plaid. You are an incredible entrepreneur, definitely um, someone that I admire greatly. You're hilarious. You're an amazing speaker, very generous, uh, great leader. I adore you. What is something that people get very wrong about you? Well, I, I would say two things. One, um, uh, I actually do have a lot more business expertise and experience than what a lot of people think I do, at least coming from the speaking side of the business, right? They think, oh, he wrote some books and he's a good speaker, but they don't realize like, oh, I actually have founded a lot of companies and funded a lot of companies and advised a lot of companies. They just, they, those two things aren't connected probably as well as they should be. I'd say the other thing, Aaron, is that um, probably the thing I'm most proud of is not any of my accomplishments, but the fact that I think it's 21 now is the number people that I have hired um, very early in their careers uh, for like their first job or nearly their first job. Like 21 people have founded their own successful companies now wow. um, who I've started. So it's, it's creating wow. this, very, very large group of entrepreneurs that I hope I taught or kind of um, inspired or sent them on their way. That's what I'm most proud of because they're out now living their dream and and creating opportunities for their teams and things like that. So um, that's the part that um, that I'm really fired up about. I, I need to have a reunion someday of all, of all those folks. You should. Well, what, what an incredible impact, Jay. And I just, I'm so thankful for your, your honesty, your advice. Your, I always learn something new. Every single time I listen to you on a podcast or hear you speak, I always learn something new, which is why, if you guys are listening, definitely check out The Bear Facts. B-A-E-R, thebearfacts.com. That is Jay's, I think, twice a month newsletter. And I can honestly say, as someone who um, has a very embarrassing inbox with many unread messages, I open every week. There's at least two to three LOLs. I reply, I forward. Check it out, thebearfacts.com. You're welcome. And um, Jay Bear, you're a rad human. I adore you. Thank you so much for being here today uh, on your terms. My pleasure. Thanks to you. Thanks for success. I appreciate it. And Congratulations on the new show. Hope to Thanks, see you uh, F2F pretty soon. Same here. Thanks again. Thank you so much for investing your heart, your mind, of course, your time with me here today. And it is my deepest hope that you have gleaned at least a few new nuggets on how to better live a life that you love on your terms. You can subscribe to see all of my weekly episodes. And if you have time, you can send a screenshot of your review of the podcast to onyourterms at erinking.com and you'll be sent a free access pass to my Digital Persuasion Masterclass, where you'll learn how to attract attention, increase your influence, and sell smarter from behind the screen. I hope that you'll join me next week for another episode of On Your Terms. And until then, let's connect on Instagram at mrs.aaron.king. Till next time, friends.